0: President Calvin Coolidge was known for his brevity of speech. He would never use three words if one word would suffice. And one Sunday morning, his wife was not feeling well, so he went to church by himself. So when he came home to the White House, his wife asked him, what did the preacher preach about? He said, sin. Well, what did he say about sin? He was against it. Beyond the story, I must confess to you that uh, I thought long and hard of how there was a day in America when preachers called sin sin. When churches were more than just an auditorium for a motivational speech, churches were more than an entertainment center. When church membership was taken seriously. There was a time in America when we used to be shocked by sin, not accommodate it and understand it. Yes, there was a time when pastors invited people to repent of sin, not try to explain it away. A time when we blushed, when we have fallen into sin. Today, we pride ourselves on being called tolerant Christians, which means that we tolerate every sinful practice and unbelief, meaning baptizing sin into the church, of not being called bigoted, meaning that we actually are not only loving sinners, but we love sin. The list goes on and on and on, and while in reality we ought to be weeping over sin. Beloved, I weep over my sin as well as the sin of others. And weeping over sin is what chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians is all about. I hope you turn to it and follow it with me. The first four chapters, we watched how the Apostle Paul began first by dealing with the intellectual sin, dealing with the philosophical sin, namely the sin of division and the sin of creating personality cult and sin of pride and and sin of arrogance, of how they were thinking they're better than others and denying the authority of the Word of God. So he dealt with that first because that is a foundational sin, because once pride sets in, all the other sins will follow— here in chapter 5, after he's dealing with that foundational sin, he comes and begins to deal, beginning at 5, as a sin of the flesh. And he begins to deal with the other sins in the church, which we're going to see as we unfold this whole epistle. In chapter 5, he turns his attention to the tolerating of sexual sin in the church. In chapter 5, he turns his attention to the fact that compromising the authority of the Word of God always, always, always leads to acceptance of other sins. Now, please don't misunderstand this chapter, because I don't want your attention to be focused away from the heart and the burden of the Apostle Paul. I'm not minimizing the fact, and he's not minimizing the fact that there is a sin, and he deals with it, and he names it, and he spells it out. But his biggest burden, his biggest heartache, his biggest pain comes from the fact that the church has accepted that sin and approved that sin. That's the burden of this chapter. Himirat, please. We sin. There are some people who may sin because they're misguided. There are some people who sin because they're misled. There are some people who sin because they're misinformed. But what makes things worse is that many in a church leadership are not lovingly admonishing such a person. Church leadership are carelessly rationalizing and excusing it instead of admonishing. And here's the crux of the problem. All sins are related. Tolerating and not repenting of one's sin will make us susceptible to other sins— I promise you, I promise you, today's sexual promise security is closely related to sexual violence and rape, and they both are related to an educational system that outlawed God from the school. All sins are interrelated. All sins are interconnected. All sins are interchangeable. Look at verses 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The first thing he had to show them is that immorality is an immorality is an immorality no matter who calls it what. Until you confront this head on, you can talk about philosophy until the cows come home, it will not get us out of the pit. The Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses here is the word ponia, from which we get the word pornography. The broad definition of pornography is that sexual activities, any sexual activities outside of a heterosexual relationship in marriage. In the Corinthian church, the ponia that was taking place was incest. And here in this case, Paul is saying that even under Roman law, it is illegal. Even the pagan Rome believes that incest is a sin, and yet the believers in Jesus Christ were tolerating it. Let me give you a grammar lesson very quickly here, because the tense of the verb here is very important because it indicates that this is not merely a one-time sin. It's not just somebody who fell an, a short indiscretion, or short affair, or, or an occasional indiscretion, or short-lived fling. No, the tense is very important because this is a repeated offence. And there is a world of difference when somebody walking with the Lord and then fill in temptation and repent and turns back to the Lord, and then another person who continues on and on and on and accepts sin as the norm. That's what he's dealing with here. The church leadership closed its eyes. The church leadership looked the other way. The church leadership shrugged and said, everybody does it and the church leadership pretended, that's not a problem. It's not their problem. Paul said to the Corinthians church, you should be mourning over this sin, not blessing sin. Now, I want to be very clear. This is very personal for me. The day may come, I don't know, but the day may come when they will haul me out of this place in handcuffs but I will never shrink from calling sin, sin, whether it be in my life or anybody else's life. I call sin in my life before I call it in anybody else. In verse 2, the Apostle Paul is saying, you should be mourning over sin as if you're mourning over a death in the family. You and I know... There are a lot of people in our country are praying for a revival. Listen to me. Keep on praying. But I'm going to tell you, based on the authority of the Word of God and my knowledge of revival history, there will be no revival until the believers come clean with God and they mourn over their sin. I know this idea of weeping over sin. Does that make sense to the churchgoers of today? I know that. I know, but it only makes sense to those who love Jesus with all of their heart. I know, because I know there are thousands of knees have not bowed down to Baal. I know to those who look at the cross and say, Jesus, you did this for me. You died for my sins. You stayed on that cross until I be redeemed and forgiven. Jesus, you shed your blood that I may be set free from sin and have power over sin, not sin have power over me. In the last message, I showed you how discipline is synonymous with love. Lack of discipline is never loving. Lack of discipline, whether it be at home or church or anywhere else, is not loving. And I know this is not only my testimony, but testimony of thousands of others. Now, beloved, when sin is not dealt with, when sin is not repented of, when sin is not confessed fully, when sin is not cleansed and purged, there can be no joy of the Lord, and there can be no power in that person's life. Do not ever, ever, ever forget that the church of Jesus Christ, that's you and me and all the believers, that we are the bride of Christ. And let me tell you something. If I know anything about Christ, he does not and he cannot stand anybody molesting his bride. He may patiently wait for repentance. He may patiently wait for confession. He may patiently wait for turning back to him. But if the person or the persons refuse to repent, then that person must be let go of by the church. That's not my words. That's not, I don't make the rules. That's, it's in the book. <laughs> Why? Because when he or she let go away from the cover of the Word of God, from the cover of the body of Christ, he or she is all alone, all alone when he's totally separated from the loving, support, and care, and fellowship of other believers. And that's what Paul means by handing over to Satan. Now, beloved, listen to me. I'm going to tell you, God knows the truth. I never read 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 without my eyes are moist with tears. Why is Paul taking this drastic measure of handing this persistent, adamant sinner to hand over to Satan. Well, there are two reasons for that. First of all, to bring that person to repentance. That's always the purpose. That is always the desire. But secondly, to keep the rest of the church from being contaminated. The deepest longing in our heart by taking any drastic measure should be to bring that persistent sinner to repentance. Never, 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 never to harm or to hurt that person. But if that person stubbornly refuses to repent, then Satan will eat his lunch and dinner. Then Satan will have his way with that person. Why? Because that person has removed himself or herself from under the covering of God. That person even expected, according to that verse 5-5, may lose his life or her life so that God may save their soul. Now he's talking about a true child of God, the elect of God, the believers, the adopted by God. Many churches are now filled with non believers, so they can't even tell. But he's talking about the child of God, the one who belongs to God, adopted by the Father. Jesus said that those whom the Father has given me, I lose none. I lose none eternally. So in order that God may save the true child from his or her own persistence in sin, He will even allow them to lose their physical life in order that their soul may eternally be saved. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. We know from Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, that both that sinner in the Corinthian church and the whole church repented. Isn't that great news? That's great news. This is the true purpose of any discipline, to restore them by repentance. I'll pray to God if there's anyone here persistent in sin, have never repented of their sin, never confessed sin. Today will be the day. Don't risk your life, because if you persist in sin, if you are determined never to confess and never to repent of your sin, then you are on your own, and that's a very frightful thing. Secondly, the reason for this drastic measure, verse 6—look at it with me—it keeps the rest of the church from fully plunging into sin. Paul said, your boasting is no good. What does he mean by this? Your boasting is not good. While the Corinthians believe or were tolerating immorality of the incest in the church— <laughs> they were bragging about their numbers. They were bragging about their budget. They were bragging about how many campuses they've got. They were bragging about their activities. They were bragging about their gifts. They were bragging. And while they were bragging about their large membership, they were tolerating sin. Verse 6 again, Paul said, "'A little leaven can penetrate and impact the whole lump of dough.'" I grew up in a home where my mother baked our bread. Before the day when she will bake the bread, she will bring a little leaven or yeast, and she will make a hole in that dough that she had kneaded together, and she will put that yeast or that leaven and cover it up, and then put the whole jar in a warm and fuzzy place. Always warm and fuzzy. The next morning, watch out. This thing just got so way up, exploding out of that tub. It's almost like one of those horror movies, you know. I remember a horror movie where this thing kept expanding and expanding and filling the kitchen and going to the living room, and people were just filling the house. Except this is not a horror movie. This is real, and this is the burden of the Apostle Paul. A wise baker knows when the dough reaches a certain height, it must be put in the oven. Why? To stop the leavening process that could ruin good bread, that could feed people. Beloved, that's what happens if sin not dealt with promptly and thoroughly. God told the Israelites when they were running out of Egypt redeemed out of Egypt, the slavery of Egypt. He said, no leaven, no leaven bread. They cannot be burdened with carrying that old life of Egypt with them. Even now, ceremonially, in Passover, so many Orthodox Jews, they will light a candle, and it's a ceremonial thing, but still represents going around and looking and searching for any yeast in the house and get rid of it, from which we got in Western culture, we got the April 14th spring cleaning. That's where it came from. Get rid of the ears. Get rid of the old things. Get rid of the things that are not helpful, that are not blessing, causing the blocking of the blessing. And Paul takes a picture of this, of what happened to them, that God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, and so as Christ delivered us and redeemed us from the dominion of sin. What is old, should be left behind, and now march for the new. We don't only remember the cross on Good Friday, or when we have celebrate the Lord's table, but we remember the cross every waking moment. Our Passover has been sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. Thanksgiving, in fact, the word Eucharist comes from the Greek word eucharisto, which means thanksgiving. We are in gratitude to God and thanksgiving for the power over sin and the dominion of sin. We remember our Passover, and our Passover is passing over from eternal death to eternal life. It's passing over from darkness and hopelessness and gloom into light and hope. It is passing over from hell to heaven. It is passing over that took us from the slavery of sin into freedom of, and victory in the Son of God. My dear, dear friends, every piece of leaven that's hiding in our hearts, every piece of leaven that is in our hidden motives, every piece of leaven that is lying inside our spirits, will sooner or later spill out a disaster, unless we decisively deal with it, biblically, confessing and repenting. Hear me right. God is not impressed by how many campuses a church has. God is not impressed by how many people attend church. God is not impressed by how many people believe our doctrine. God is not impressed by any of this, but He is only impressed by obedience to His Word. Why? Because just as leaven represents the old life of Egypt and must be left behind, even so, sin and the tolerance of sin represents the old nature before Christ, and we must ruthlessly remove it every day. It must not be allowed to take hold in our lives. But that's not all. God has given us the resources. He has given us the resources to deal with sin on a daily basis, sometimes even moment by moment basis. He gave us His Holy Spirit, and He gave us His Holy Book. I know some people use the old nature as an excuse, and have you probably heard the kids say, "Or oh, the devil made me do it"? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> well, yeah. See, the devil made me do it. It's okay when a kid says this. It's not okay for somebody who's been walking with the Lord for a long time and say, "Well, you know, I just couldn't help it; it's the flesh." In fact, I heard a story about a man who broke the law, and he appeared before the judge, and instead of throwing himself on the mercy of the court, he tried to explain to the judge that he is a believer in Jesus, but the old nature is still in him, the old man is still in him. The old nature is what really did the breaking of the law, but the new nature did not. Well, the judge was not very impressed with that argument. And normally he would have sentenced him 30 days in prison. But he ended up doubling his sentence. When the man said, Your Honor, the old man did it, the judge said, Okay, because the old man in you did it, I give him 30 days in prison. And because the new man in you was an accomplice, (laughs) I give him 30 days. Double your sentence. Look at verses 9 to 13. Here Paul corrects a misunderstanding that arose from a previous correspondence he had with them. Listen carefully. Sometimes people deliberately misunderstand. (laughs) My goodness, I've seen it. In the letter that he had sent them before this one, he told them not to associate or fellowship with immoral people. Paul was referring to immoral people in the church, in the membership of the church, not those who are outside of the church. And he was flabbergasted. I said, how can you miss this one? But he goes ahead patiently, explains it away. His misunderstanding resulted from them cutting themselves off from the people of the world completely and tolerating sin inside the church and accepting fellowship, without condemning, without admonishing, without helping the person to repent. And Paul is telling him this is a complete misunderstanding. If you cut yourself off from the world, from the non-believers, who's going to witness to them? Who's going to tell them about Jesus? Who's going to lead them to salvation? Who's going to tell them that Jesus saves? In fact, verse 11, he goes on to talk about this immorality let me categorize them in three different ones, okay? Sexual perversion, greed, idolatry. Why sexual immorality? Well, because it degrades the person who commits it on a regular basis without repentance. Because it can lead the person into bestiality, Why is persistent in sexual sin without repentance dangerous? Listen carefully. Because sexual passion and sexual instinct should not rule supreme in our lives. Jesus should rule supreme. It is an insult to the Holy Spirit of God who is on the inside of us and ready and willing to help us overcome and get into victory when we ask Him to and don't. The person who does not appreciate the power of the Holy Spirit which is available to them will always fall in this habitual pattern of behavior, which becomes devastating. The second category here is greed. Why does he put greed on the same level as sexual immorality? Well, because a greedy person judges everything by purely materialistic standards. And our life and our future eternity is far from materialistic standards as it gets. There's something else. A greedy person is not a giver. He's a taker. You see, God is a giver. Satan is a taker. A godly person gives— The greedy person takes, and then takes some more. Everything God created gives. The sun shines to give us light and warmth. The trees give us fruit and shade. The rain comes down to water the seed and grow the food. Everything under Satan's control takes, takes and then takes again and gives nothing in return. The Bible said Satan steals, robs, and plunders. The third category is idolatry. Well, you say, oh, Michael, what's idolatry got to do with me? I don't get a statue out like some of my Hindu friends, Buddhist friends, and bow to it. And that's idol worshiping. Please listen carefully. Listen carefully. Anything or anyone who occupies God's rightful place in my life is a form of idolatry. Sexual immorality is a sin against oneself. Greed is a sin against others. Idolatry is a sin against God. I want to tell you this story that I pray to God will illustrate what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us about the danger of tolerating sin and what it can do. Now, it comes from the Eskimos, and the details are a bit gruesome, but it illustrates how the devastating nature of tolerating sin and not dealing with it in repentance and purging. The Eskimos, when they want to catch wolves... They're dangerous in many ways for them. So the way they do it is they take the sharp knife and they coat it with animal blood. Then they freeze it. Then they coat it some more. Then they wait. Then they coat it some more until the blade of the knife is completely covered by frozen blood. And then the hunter fixes the knife in the ground with the blade up. And when the wolf allows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent of the blood and discovers the bait, he starts licking and licking the blood and then licking some more and licking some more. And then he licks faster and faster and vigorously lapping the blade till the sharp edge of the blade begin tearing into his tongue but he's oblivious to it. He's oblivious to it. His craving for blood becomes so great that he does not notice that this raises a sharp sting of the naked blade in his own tongues. Neither does he recognize his insatiable thirst for blood needed to be satisfied, that is, being satisfied on his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite only craves more and more and more until dawn finds him dead in the snow. No wonder Jesus said that water that this world gives is like salt water. Have you ever tried with felt thirsty and you drank salt water? The more you drink and you're thirsty and the more you drink it looks like water and you drink it, the more you thirst, the more you thirst, and the more you thirst— You'll never satisfy. But thanks be to God for the living water, the Lord Jesus Christ, who set us free from the power of sin and the dominion of sin by the power of His own blood on the cross of Calvary. He has set us free. And every single moment He wants to give us victory. The question is, Will you ask Him? Every time you fail, will you ask Him? Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.